Uh, let me ask you this. Why is the Christian life often so hard? Maybe that question is a bit surprising. Is it hard to be a Christian? Well, maybe you're asking that from the outside looking in. You know, isn't the whole point that you're supposed to find some kind of peace, hope, joy? You know, why bother if in fact it is hard? Maybe Christian faith is something you've only come across relatively recently for real and, and all you can see is the positives. But if you've been a Christian for a while, like I have, it can come as a shock and a disappointment to find actually life as a Christian isn't always easy. And that's not merely because of the external circumstances of life. It's also because of a disappointment with ourselves and our own shortcomings and our continuing sin. Now, it'll be different for each of us in the way that we experience that. We might say, you know, I struggle with my temper. I, I lack self-control and I give in to temptation far too easily. I still find it re really difficult not being in control as much as I can, and, uh, you know, of my own life, of others around me. I struggle with lust and greed and envy. Whatever it is, it can be disappointing, it can be frustrating, it can be disturbing, it can be crushing. Now, chapters 1 to 5, which you looked at last year in, in, in Paul's letters to the Romans, give us good news in the face of our rebellion against God and the way that we continually fall short of his perfect standards for our lives. The good news is that it's not up to us to earn our way into God's favour through kind of religious law-keeping. But it's all down to him, and he sent his son to die on the cross so that we can put our faith in him, and then when we do that, we're once and for all totally and utterly forgiven. And a few weeks ago, we then looked at chapter 6 in two halves. And chapter 6 asks the question, well, if then I've been forgiven... And my standing with God depends entirely on Jesus and nothing on me. Well, does that then mean I can just do what I like? Because maybe that is the answer to the question that I've just asked about why the Christian life is so difficult. When we struggle with our temper or self-control or some other temptation, whatever it might be. One answer might be, who cares? Who cares? Because you're saved by grace. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul began to answer that kind of objection. And the answer comes from a couple of different angles, but it's basically a very clear no. Just doing what you like is totally inconsistent with the new life that God has given you by his grace in Christ. We've died to sin. We've been raised to new life with Christ. We have a new master. We're no longer slaves to sin slaves to righteousness and asking if you can just live how you like after you've been saved by grace well that's like that's like being saved from drowning in the middle of the ocean with no other hope of rescue and then you know after you've you've, you've been dragged onto the boat and you think oh fantastic you say would it be right if I dived straight back into the water again you know, why would you want to do that? If you understand what's happened, if you understand what you've been saved from, and you understand the new life that you now have in this rescue, why would you want to dive back in? That's what that kind of question is like. 
So the kind of who cares response then to the question of when we struggle with sin in our lives, that doesn't quite work. It's not quite enough. But then we're still left with the question then, well, why do we still sin? Why do we still find living as a Christian hard if we've been saved in the way that we've been hearing about? And so there are three further possible answers that we sometimes give to that problem. Here's one. We go, okay, then the, the, the issue is really what I need to do is I need to try harder. You know, this is very straightforward. The reason, Christian, that you struggle with sin and temptation is you're just not trying hard enough. Come on. You really need to take the Christian life more seriously. So you feel guilty about your ongoing sin, do you? Good, you should. That's how you should feel. It will motivate you to do better. After all, don't you believe that Jesus died for you? And this is how you repay him? And that response can then lead to the next one, which is, hmm, I think I might be a fake. See, the issue is that other people seem to kind of get this, and I don't. I'm the only one, it feels, who, who struggles with sin and temptation and half-heartedness. And all the other Christians around me, they seem to kind of float through life and have effortless joy in the Lord. But as for me, I'm pretty hopeless. And maybe that's because the problem is actually me. I haven't really become a Christian at all. It doesn't work. And that might lead either to giving up altogether or it might lead to a kind of resigned hardening to things staying as they are. And so we get to stop trying as another response. Just, just stop trying. I'm I am just who I am. You know, I'm an angry person. I'm a controlling person. My thought life is just out of control. I can't do anything about my greed and my envy. I'll never be able to stop being a people pleaser. You know that song from The Greatest Showman, This Is Me. I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And we end up back where we started with who cares. I'm saved by grace, why can't I just carry on as I am? So you see, and you see, we, so we, we end up sort of going round those four responses in a kind of spiral. Who cares? Try harder. I'm a fake. Stop trying. I wonder if that spiral feels familiar to us at all. Well, in chapter 7 now, Paul addresses that kind of question, and he comes at it via the question of how the law and law-keeping, religious law-keeping, fit in the Christian life. Now, some of, what, of this, if you're paying attention in the reading, it might feel quite technical and kind of, oh, goodness, I don't know what this is about. But we've got to keep this main question that I've just outlined in, in, in mind. See, this isn't abstract theology, kind of miles removed from everyday life as a Christian. This is about me and my daily experience and you and your daily experience of living the Christian life if you're trusting in Jesus. And if that's not you yet and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is outlining for you what the Christian life looks like, what it, what it would, if you did put your trust in Jesus, this is how it would feel. And Paul's point is that the human heart needs to get clear on its attitude to the law. He's talking about the law of Moses, which Jewish Christians needed especially to consider, but it applies more 
widely too to any kind of seeking to solve our problems with adhering to a list of rules. The question is, do we need more of that in our lives or less? More law-keeping or less law-keeping? And Paul says basically, neither. That's not the point. Now we're going to see why. So first of all, you can see on the handout, uh, a new life, verses 1 to 6. Now this is the same thought as he's already put in in, in chapter 6, but he's putting it slightly differently. Christian, you have died to the old way of living, and in particular, you have died to law-keeping as a way of life. And so he says the law is actually like a bad husband. And you've been released from that relationship, verse 2, because of Jesus' death. His death ended the condemnation that the law brings. And so it no longer has any hold over you. And now you are free, verse 6, to serve in the new way of, of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code, the law of Moses. Now, can you see, if you've been with us, this is like the new identity that we saw in chapter 6 in various ways, a new master, a new life. The point is, life under the law that you were under before was miserable. Because the main job of the law is to condemn. Look at you, you you know, you haven't been loving others, the law tells you. You've only been thinking of yourself. You've murdered others in your heart, if not in practice. You have coveted what belongs to others and failed to be content with what God has given you as your loving creator. And having the law as your husband in the metaphorical sense that Paul uses it here is miserable because it involves this cycle of guilt and despair. You know, I'm a terrible person. I kind of know that. And I look at God's standards in my life and I think I'm not doing that. So I think, oh, maybe I should just try a bit harder, but I still fail and I still feel terrible about myself. And I try harder and I fail again. And on it goes in that spiral. So Paul is saying, no, good news. Good news, first of all. As we've already seen a number of times in this letter, you have died to all of that because Christ died and you are joined to him. So now in him, you have new life, a new husband in Jesus Christ. And the way marriage works, this is his point in these verses in 1 to 6, the way marriage works is you can't be married to two people at the same time. That is what he's talking about here. Now, this isn't all that the Bible has to say about the, the painful and tricky question of remarriage after divorce, which I appreciate is a, is a, is a question that will raise questions for us at, at different times. But actually, that, that isn't really what he's talking about here. This is not, his main point here is not to kind of give a discourse about the question of remar- um, divorce and remarriage. But his point is to say, you can't be married to two people at the same time. And in the, in the, in the sort of metaphor that he's using about Christ, he's saying it's either Christ or the law, but not both. And the point is, if your new husband is Christ and you have the spirit in you, which are different ways of saying the same thing, living a life of religious law-keeping where you just have to keep trying harder to save yourself and do a little bit better, that is no longer appropriate in any way. And the big thing about having the Holy Spirit is that the law is no longer outside of us, But as the Old Testament promised, and you may be familiar with passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, don't worry if you're not, but there was this big promise that God's people were waiting for when the law would be written on God's people's hearts. And so rather than being a sort of word that comes to us from outside and we think, I can't do that, now it comes to us on the inside from the Holy Spirit so that we want to obey God's law because it's our hearts 
have been changed so that we, we, we want to obey him from the heart. That is the difference the Spirit makes. Well, so far, so good. But then that, if you put it like that, it makes it sound like everything should just be straightforward and easy then, shouldn't it? Because we've got, a new, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got new hearts that want to obey God, apparently. But in my experience, in my everyday life, well, I still find that I struggle with sin. So what is going on? Well, we need to understand what the real problem is in order to begin to answer this question. And so he goes on, verses 7 to 13, to a new understanding of sin. Now, we need to get clear on Paul's logic here. Verse 7, if you look at that, bear with me for a moment. What he's just said is you've died to the law, you've got a new life in Christ with the Holy Spirit living in you. So what follows then is... Okay, does that mean that the law was the problem all along? Is the law sin, he then says, verse 7. That, 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 this is his logic, okay? Now, you need to, we, we need to really follow this. Because this kind of question is not the question probably in the 21st century we would ask immediately at this point. But the reason he has to ask that at this point is because his strong language about dying to the law could make it sound like God has changed his mind. And God is the kind of God who has plan A, which involves the law, and then it kind of goes along with the law in Israel and all of that through the Old Testament, then goes, huh, do you know what? This isn't really working. So let's scrap that, and let's do plan B over here, which is Jesus. And so God is a kind of, give it a go with plan A, oh dear, let's try plan B. Okay? And the reason, we might think, well, you know, don't really have much to do with the law of Moses, but the point is we need to know that God is not a plan A, plan B kind of God. Okay, that, that really does matter because it's about whether God is consistent with what he's said. Because plan A involved making a whole ton of promises about what God was going to do. And if it turns out God gets to the end of that and goes, Judge, no, it hasn't worked. We need to do something different then that tells us something. That tells us God is the kind of God who makes promises but doesn't keep them. Do you see? So it does matter because we need to know today that God is the God who makes promises because there's a whole ton of promises in these chapters. We're going to spend the next few weeks in the glorious chapter 8 reading of the wonderful things God says are true and the things that he promises to Christians. We need to know that God is the kind of God who keeps the promises that he makes. Okay, so that is why Paul is asking this question here in verse 7. Okay, he's not the kind of God who changes his mind. Because the reason we need to die to the law is because the real problem is our sin. So the Times, you know, the newspaper, the Times of London, once ran a series of articles about what is wrong with the world. And there were lots of theories, you know, the real problem. What would we say? Oh, the real problem is lack of education, it's lack of equality, it's lack of opportunity. The novelist G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said, Dear Sir, you ask, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. So what's he saying? He's saying, I am what is wrong with the world. The problem is not outside of me, it's not out there in the world, the problem is me. And that is what Paul is saying here. Do you see? And what Paul is saying is the law gives us a mirror that just shows us our faults. So do you see, he says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. 
Well, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. You know, covet means to be envious of things other people have. So it's like when you look in the mirror and you've got a massive toothpaste splodge on your top. Well, whose fault is that? Is that the mirror's fault that you've got a toothpaste splodge on your top? No, it's not, is it? It's your fault, but the mirror is showing you that you've got that problem. You don't know it's there until you look in the mirror and the mirror says, look, there's a problem. And then more than that, he, goes, he, he, he says sin goes further and actually exploits the opportunity to sin more now, now that it knows what sin looks like. So because of the law, once sin, sin longs to reject God, because that's fundamentally what sin is. And so when, when sin hears, this is a way that God has said you need to live, it goes, oh, okay, I'm going I'm to want to not do that because I want to reject God who gave that law. So it's the old thing of when you see the sign that says, do not walk on the grass. You know? You hadn't really thought about walking on the grass till that point, had you? But now it's all you can think about. You go into a room, and there are two letters addressed to somebody else on the table. And they're both kind of open with their contents inside. And one of them says, top secret, private and confidential. Now, I'm sure none of us would actually go through with this, of course, but which is the envelope that we are drawn to and really tempted to have a quick peek inside to see what it's going on? You see, the commandment, the law, the regulation, it magnifies and attracts what is already in our hearts. So do you see Paul's point here in verses 8 to 11? The point is, this isn't the law's problem. It's not the mirror's fault that you've got a toothpaste spodge on your top. The law is just highlighting that the real problem is me. Okay, so, so that is why God is not a plan A, plan B God, because really all along he's been dealing with the fundamental problem, not of the law, but of me and of you. That has been his plan from the beginning to the end. So, where have we got to then? Our question is, why is the Christian life hard? Verses 1 to 6 began by saying, well, you've got a new life, you've died to the law. Okay, that doesn't yet explain why the Christian life is hard. So, verses 7 to 13, the problem is not the law, the problem is your sin, and that is what Jesus died for. So, why is the Christian life hard? And we're now in a position to answer that in verses 14 to 25. As we see in verses 14 to 25, in this new life that we have, we have a new experience of inner conflict. Verses 14 to 25. Back in verse 6, Paul says we have the Holy Spirit, and that means the law is written on our hearts. So with the law written on my heart, what then do I feel in my Christian life today? Well, I feel conflict. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. That's what he said so far. The law is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But it's me that's the problem. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And literally what he says is, I'm unspiritual, having been sold as a slave to sin. In fact, he says, I'm in the flesh. I'm fleshly. And, and chapter 6, Paul has said very clearly already that we are no longer slaves to sin. And so you come to chapter 7, verse 14, and you think, well, hang on, is this, is this a contradiction? Because back in chapter 6, part of the whole point of this new life is I am no longer a slave to sin. And now in chapter 7, he's saying... I am fleshly, unspiritual, 
sold as a slave to sin. What he means is having been once sold as a slave to sin. But now we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the law written on our hearts. And so we experience a conflict between our inner being, where the law is written on our hearts, and our bodies, which remain fleshly. Now, it's helpful to have a picture in our minds as we read these verses. Imagine a derelict house, which is in a terrible state. And one day this house gets taken over by a new owner who intends to do it up and restore it to be even better than it was when it was first built. Now, in the first half of chapter 7, we've got to the point where the new owner has taken charge. That is the decisive thing. He's got the keys. He's the boss now. It's his house. But on day one of owning that house and day two and day three, does anything look much different? Well, it may be that there are things which change immediately. That sometimes happens with the new ownership. You know, immediately something just obvious goes. But there will be lots more that will take a lot longer to fix. And that's because the house is in a state of having been previously sold as a slave to sin. And it's been neglected over so many years. And even now, with this amazing new owner who's going to repair everything, the effects of having been previously under a terrible, neglectful owner continue to have an effect. So verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For, for what I want to do, I do not do. For what I hate, I do. Does that ring true? If you're trusting in Jesus, does that ring true in your experience? You know, I want to love my family, and I want to care for them, we might say. I know in my heart that's the right thing to do, but I find myself getting really grumpy about inconsequential things. What I hate, I do. What is going on? Well, the law is good. That is not the problem. But verse 17, it is my sin dwelling in my body that does that. It's the piles of rubble and mold left over from the mistreatment of the old owner. Do you see? And they're still there in the house, even though the owner has changed. And he says it again in verses 18 to 20. Same thing. And then verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Can you see? And so many Christians will say, yeah, you know, that is exactly what I experience. And we cry with Paul, verse 24, what a wretched man or woman I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's him we have to keep looking to in the midst of this struggle. And then conclusion, so then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, my flesh, that word is the same word, a slave to the law of sin. Do you see, this is why the Christian life is so hard. Because I'm in this weird period of existence where I'm under new ownership, but I'm still living with the after effects of my old way of life lived rebelling against God. And so before we finish, we need to see then that the implications for making sense of our lives now are huge. You know, we go so wrong when we don't understand this. So, so remember how we started. When we struggle with sin, we said, who cares? It doesn't matter, I'm saved by grace. And the answer is no, you're under new ownership. There's no room for sin here. The rubble and the mold, it, it, it does need to go. It's totally out of place with the new 
owner. But then as we look at that rubbish, the sins that we struggle with, our self-centeredness or pride or lack of self-control or whatever it is, what we're tempted to do then is just say, oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying, I need to get a shovel out and just get on with doing this myself. Try harder. That's what needs to happen. And, and, and what happens when we do that, when we take that on ourselves, which is it's down to me to sort out the rubble in my Christian life, we're returning to law-keeping as a way of life. And law-keeping won't help us because, verses 7 to 13, the problem is me. Dear sir, I am what is wrong with the world. And the point is, I know I should be kinder and keep a tighter rein on my tongue and I should control my thoughts. But if anything, knowing that just makes it worse. It makes me feel guilty. And in itself, just knowing that does not give me the power to change. The problem is not simply that I'm not trying hard enough. But then as we end up, as we saw, we often end up saying, well, I'm a fake then. Because this struggle means I haven't really become a Christian. And Paul is saying, no, that inner struggle that you feel, that is what being a Christian feels like. It's okay. Don't give up. In fact, realize that struggle is a sign of genuine faith. Because do you know what? Those who are not trusting Jesus, they don't feel that kind of conflict at all. See, the world will tell us, just just accept yourself. Just, Just be who you are. You do you. No one's perfect. There's no conflict there. The Christian experiences conflict, and that is a sign not of being a fake, but being the real thing. So, brothers and sisters, if that is us this morning, and we feel that conflict within us, just take courage. Be reassured. That is the normal Christian life. Keep looking to Jesus. Because the alternative is finally so often we resort to thinking it's all too hard. Stop trying. And that is where we need to take to heart, as it were, this sense of who we really are. Paul's point is that the real you, if you're a Christian trusting in Jesus, is the one who has died to sin and been raised with Christ. The real you is that person who's been born again on the inside, who has the Holy Spirit living in them. The real you is not the one who shouts at people when things don't go your way, if you're a Christian. And this does actually make a difference when we struggle with whatever it is, because we say, oh, I'm I'm just an angry person, deal with it. I always want to be in control. I'm a people pleaser. It's just who I am. And Paul is saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. That's not who you are. Now, those things are still there in your flesh, in your body, because they're still here from the old life. But you have a new heart where the Spirit lives with the law written on your heart. And when God looks at you, he says, you're not a self-centered, people-pleasing, angry, controlling person. You are my beloved child who has the heart of Jesus that has been given to you as a free gift. That is who you are. And so do you know what? When you understand that is who you are, you can change. 
But it's not down to you to get the shovel out and do it yourself. It's down to you to believe and trust that what God is saying about you is true. That is what living by faith means. Faith means believing that what God says is true, that you're not that person anymore. Even though you feel like it, well, that is the old self still left over in this now and not yet period. Faith means saying, okay, I'm going to take God at his word. And as I feel that temptation to sin, whatever it feels like in my life, today, tomorrow, as we go to work, as we're at home with the family, as we're frustrated by whatever situation it is, we say, I'm going to take you at your word, Lord, and believe that that old response that I've had for so many years is not me. Because in Christ, I'm a new person. And so I'm going to trust in him to give me his Holy Spirit, who he's already given me, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to live the new way and not the old way, which is just going back, diving back into the ocean when we've been rescued. Now, there's so much more we can say about what that actually means and what it, what it means to live by faith, to live in the power of the Spirit, the difference between that and just getting the shovel out and law-keeping and all the rest of it. And that is chapter 8. Okay, chapter 8 is going to go into this for us. And we're going to spend, uh, uh, instead of doing the whole chapter in one sermon as we're doing now, we're going to go through it slowly because it's so wonderful and helpful for us in our lives. But for now, let's be clear, we have new life. The real problem is sin, so keep looking to Jesus, not law-keeping. And realize experiencing inner conflict is completely normal. For as long as we're in the flesh, until Jesus returns, we will experience conflict. Well, who will deliver us then? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Keep looking away from ourselves. Keep looking to him. Let's pray now. Father God, we come before you so conscious often of the ways we have sinned in the past and the way we, we continue in the present. But we praise you that when we're, when we're trusting in Jesus, you look at us and you see the new life that you've given us. You see what is true on the inside. Which is a gift from God gift from you, a new heart where the spirit lives, where the law is written on our hearts. And so help us as we continue in that struggle, in that experience of inner conflict, to look not to ourselves and our own abilities to, to say no to sin and yes to you just by our own 
efforts and strength, but to look to Jesus to say, that is not who I am, because I'm in Christ. So I'm going to trust and believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to change me, to enable me to grow, to enable the renovation work that is so desperately needed in my life. Help us to keep looking to Jesus and to then look forward to the day when we will be free from sin once and for all, when we will be delivered from this body subject to death and given new bodies in which we can live praising you for eternity. Amen.